Welcome everyone to this month's BJJ podcast. I am Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome from your team here at the Bone & Joint Journal. So far this year, our podcasts have either accompanied an original paper or review article, which we've published here at the journal. And we've also produced two podcast series on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on our specialty, which we do hope you found informative in these unusual and difficult times. As some of you may know, as we did last year, for the months of June and July, we are doing a podcast to accompany our supplements from the American Hip and Knee Society closed meetings. So over the next 15 to 20 minutes or so, we'll be discussing the July supplement of the BJJ that includes 19 papers from the American Hip Society closed meeting in 2019. We hope to give you a brief overview of the Hip Society and who the members are, as well as discuss how our collaboration came about and has developed over the past year, along with how we hope this will benefit you as our listeners and readers. We also aim to give you a behind-the-scenes insight into how those within the supplement have been chosen, as well as some brief description on a few select papers. So firstly today, I have the pleasure of being joined by our Editor-in-Chief here at the BJJ, Professor Farah Sadad. Welcome, Prof, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Prof and I are del- delighted to be joined by the guest editor for the HIP Supplement, Dr. Craig de la Valle, who is Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery and Chief for the Division of Adult Reconstruction at Rush University Medical Center in the U.S., Welcome, Dr. Delavalle, and a big thank you for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. So, Craig, if I could start with you, uh, could you give our listeners just a brief overview of the HIP Society and, and what role it plays? Yeah, so the HIP Society was, uh, was created in the late 1960s and basically to foster interest in North America about hip surgery. You know, right about that same time, you know, John Charnley's total hip replacement was getting very popular. There were surgeons from the U.S., who were going over uh, to watch uh, Sir John do his operation. And uh, when these surgeons got back, they kind of needed a forum to really discuss with each other what was going on, what they were doing in the U.S. And that's, I think, where things really started for the American Hip Society. And just to give you a sense of scale, in terms of active members, um, the membership is capped at 100 members. So it's a relatively small society. Mm-hmm. And it's folks who are real interested in, in the hip, hip joint. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the majority of our members are, are surgeons who perform total hip arthroplasty and its variants. Um, but I think we all recognize that in a couple hundred years, or maybe sooner than that, um, hopefully we're not replacing people's joints with metal and plastic. So we have a strong contingent of very skilled and forward-thinking hip arthroscopists and young adult hip specialists to uh, try to convince the rest of us that we shouldn't be using metal and plastic to approach every problem. That's interesting. And in terms of, you know, obviously that was the original setup of the society, how has has that morphed over time and what are the main aims of it now? How does it sort of get across its message? You know, well, I think when we talk about a couple of the papers in in the supplement, we'll get a real good sense of in my mind, how these societies function by transferring knowledge. But the basic idea is to share ideas. Yeah. You know, I, think, um, I think you see a combination of different presentations at the meeting. And we run two meetings. We run a closed meeting uh, that we call the summer meeting, which is usually in September. Mm-hmm. And then we do a quote-unquote open meeting, which is in concert with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons annual meeting at specialty day. Um, but the closed meeting is really for members and, and people who are leaders in the world of uh, the hip in North America to share ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think you see a combination of things. I think um, I always feel pressure to bring my best things to the hip society because, um, you know, I just feel like it's my peers. These are the people 
honestly, who I want to impress and I want to share with them kind of the, the cool stuff that we're doing, the great stuff that we're doing. But we also do see a lot, and it's really encouraged in many ways, to bring early research, yeah. to bring stuff that maybe this is not the final format. And that's why, you know, when you look at how many papers are presented and how many wind up in the supplement, some of these papers that we see at the Hip Society don't get published for a couple of years. Mm. But they are earlier ideas that are still kind of gelling. And I, and I think in, in some ways, those are the most important parts of the meeting because I, as a, as a, a member and getting to go to the close, closed meeting, I get to see stuff that people are working on Again, that's not final form yet, and where maybe yeah. they've looked at the data and they haven't figured out exactly what it all means, and maybe they're presenting it to help figure out what it all means. Yeah, and um, and that's really exciting and really fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, because I, I think we got that f- f- feel from the the, la- the supplement last year, but you can again, you can very much so when we come on to it, you can see it this year. It's sort of um, setting almost the trends of where general hip, hip research is going to be as we go forward, isn't it? And also, do you find it also helps refine the data and, and make, it, make it better almost? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think presenting your work, you get very good feedback because yeah. you have a lot of very smart people in the room who really care about hip surgery. Mm. So it's really meant to be um, an open forum, an open forum, you know, a, a quote-unquote safe place. Now, um, you know, we know that's not true, right? Because <laughs> Uh, we're dealing with orthopedic surgeons and we're dealing with people who have big personalities and who are really smart and who are not afraid to share their, uh, their opinions. But nonetheless, you know, I think one of the things that's always fun with the meeting is the discussions. Yeah. And we've really tried in the past several years to make the talks shorter, really Mm -hmm. limit people to five minutes, 10 slides. You know, you don't need an introduction slide. We all know what you're talking about to lay, allow a lot more room for discussion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would say the majority of the, of the discussion was gentlemanly and scholarly, yep. but some of it gets heated. But yes. I think, I mean, you know, everybody's, you know, friends at the end of the day and there's lots yep. of social events along with it, but it's, it's in certain respects nice to see people get excited yep. um, and get up and say, you know, I don't really think you're telling the truth there or yep. I don't think you're looking at this the right way. Yeah or have you considered? So I think that's a big part of the meeting. And I always walk away with the meeting with ideas for new research, which, yeah. you know, I think is one of the, one of the things that, you know, you go to these meetings for is not only to improve patient care, because I always learn things and I'm like, we should be doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also to generate new ideas because maybe someone presents something and I look at it in a slightly different way. Yeah. Say, you know, let's, let's try to look at this. So it's a fun meeting. It's definitely one of the highlights of the year. Yeah. Um, the meeting's usually somewhere nice. Um, and there's usually good food and time to, you know, see people who you haven't seen. You know, I think uh, hopefully we're going to have a meeting this year. Yes, um, I think it'll be that much more special this year because I think, you know, uh, I think people miss, um, miss the personal interaction and the scholarly interaction. You know, they love getting into a room and talking about orthopedics. And we've, we've been deprived of that for the past couple of months. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of stuff in the U.S. with residency and fellowship programs, collaborating with other programs and doing Zoom calls and stuff like that, because I think people just really crave that interaction with their colleagues to discuss cool stuff that they're learning or they're seeing or they're not understanding or something 
Absolutely, Craig. No, I totally agree. And uh, that, that's a re- really, not, a really good over, uh, overview and insight into what the hip study is for our listeners. So, Prof, if I come to you next, um, could you give us some insights into how the collaboration with, from between the journal and the hip society has sort of come about and developed over over the past year? For those who don't know, thanks, Andrew. So, th- this is a, a three-year process that uh, we have agreed to together. So, we're now uh, this supplement will be the second year output. And the, the supplement last year really was extremely well received. There were some excellent papers. And as Craig had said, it's a synthesis of some of the new work of the thought leaders in hip surgery in North America. And I think that's extremely valuable to take those thoughts, take those ideas, take those discussions, synthesize them into papers that stand up to what is a very robust peer review process at BJJ and, and bring it together. Uh, to something that can be disseminated internationally. So we have all over, from all over the globe received feedback on how welcome it was to see such richness of high-quality work uh, disseminated together and also to see some of those ideas, some of which are not necessarily those ideas that are driving hip surgery outside the United States quite so feverishly at that time, but will inevitably yeah. spread outwards. And so people are getting an insight into things that are going to affect them in one way or another in future, at least an understanding of where the biggest volume of work is going on and quite how they're working. So I think it's been a very positive thing for the BJJ. I've had the privilege of attending those meetings that uh, Craig has described. They are truly wonderful. Mm. And added to that, we've of course got the, uh, the prize papers, which are yeah. really very hard fought, uh, you know, international submissions from all over the world, a very competitive process. And uh, I think some very impressive output sometimes you know for the journal and for our readership it's wonderful to see all this in print in this medium and i hope that for the hip society it is of benefit to have this material disseminated beyond the united states in a very clear very crisp uh, way absolutely yeah no absolutely prof and i, I think the, the benefits are without doubt there to the reach of the journal and like I say we hope to the hip society but and if we be as you mentioned the the price page Price papers which we're about to come on to but before we do that prof if you just for the the papers in the supplement just for our listeners who don't know can you just give them an oversight about how the the, pay, the papers are chosen and the sort of peer review process they go through prior to acceptance in the journal absolutely so the, these are all all the papers submitted outside the prize papers are papers that would have been presented at the um, hip society autumn meeting, the what Craig called the summer meeting. Mm. And uh, so the, out of those, those authors who feel their work is complete enough for publication, submit to the BJJ for a review process. Mm-hmm. We've been very careful to ensure that that review process includes both North American and North, non-North American reviewers for every paper so that we get an international uh, review process that's pretty robust. Uh, and then Uh, Once these papers are reviewed, they come back to uh, myself and our guest editor, Craig, who who looks uh, and Craig looks at them and advises us as to how we can improve those papers. And then we agree on which papers make it into the supplement and which don't. And uh, there are quite a few that don't make it through. But those that do are usually outstanding and are usually improved by that peer review process. Yeah, The, uh, the, the prize papers go through a slightly different pathway in that multiple papers uh, from all around the world, people do really uh, cherish these prizes, and some of the best uh, best work that there is gets submitted for these awards. So these papers are submitted in, and that, in fact, they are reviewed 
by the HIP Society team that Craig leads uh, with uh, Josh Jacobs, the president for the past year. And they will determine those prices. Uh, that once they've determined the three prize papers, they then go through a BJJ peer review process just to make sure that we're looking at the methodology and ensuring that those papers are presented in absolutely the best possible light and as clearly as possible. Yeah. So it's without doubt, Prof, a, a rigorous review process to, to be in the supplement, particularly for those prize papers, prize papers which we're going to come on to. So, Craig, if I come back to yourself, uh, looking at the supplement, what do you feel have been, before we move on to the prize papers, what do you feel the, the core or topical themes have, have been uh, of the papers over the past year? Yeah, you know, looking at it, it's, um, it's always such a mix. It's always so interesting. But there were definitely a couple of themes. Dual mobility was definitely one of them. You know, and at the meeting, there were, there were quite a few more papers presented on dual mobility. And in many ways, that makes sense. Um, all the data that comes out consistently shows that dislocation is one of the most common complications that we deal with that complicates a primary replacement as well as a revision replacement. So, you know, it makes sense that, that we're looking at that. And, you know, the HIP Society, not like any other group, has early adopters, and people who are suspicious of any type of new technology. Yeah. And it was, again, very fascinating at the meeting to really see that interplay between the early adopters and the, the people who were more um, suspicious of any type of new technology. Yeah. And um, yeah, that interplay was interesting. It was interesting to see how, how the two different groups uh, in certain ways, uh, interpreted each other's data. So yeah. no, absolutely. It's uh, and it's it's good to have those those two extremes almost, though, isn't it? Because yeah. I think you get the balanced argument for it. Um, and that sort of moves on to the the first prize paper I thought we discussed. So that's the the one that won the Otto Alfrank Award, which was from HSS in New York. Um, which, as you um, say, is uh, you know was part of a, a range of dual mobility papers discussed at the meeting, and th- that was a combined clinical and in vitro study that looked at the malseating of the the modular dual mobility liners. Um, so, if you could you just give us a brief overview, Craig, of what what you think the key messages were from that paper. The thing I like about this paper is that um, it's a simple take home message. Mm-hmm. I think the take home message for me was <clears throat> you need to be careful when putting in these modular dual mobility liners. There has definitely been concern over you know since they came out about the possibility of corrosion between uh, that metallic shell and that metallic liner that you're inserting and i think you just need to be real careful when you put that in there Mm. um you know obviously hss is uh you know surgeons who are competent do a large volume of procedures and to see that just over five percent of them um were malseated is is striking and just shows you how careful you have to be and i think is a lesson to us all that, you know, you really need to expose the socket. You really need to ensure that that modular liner is flush and that yeah. it's seated correctly. I think that's right. And, it's, and it's, it's like you say, even in a, a big center like HSS, you know, I think the, the overall rate was one in 20, you know, even in a high volume center. So I think, it, like you say, often the best papers, they have to have a simple take, take-home message like that, don't they? Yeah. And as we pulled the audience and asked them, there were several surgeons, and this really hasn't clinically been reported to my knowledge, but there were several surgeons who said that they felt they'd seen an adverse local tissue reaction, a patient with clinical symptomatology that required a reoperation because of a mal-seated liner. 
That's interesting, isn't Again, it? Again, I have not seen that. We can ask Farz if he's seen it published. I have not seen that published yet. Yeah. Um, and again, I think that's one of the, um, you know, one of the reasons why it's fun to be in the hip society because you see this stuff first. You got a bunch of high volume people who do a lot of surgery and they're going to see stuff first. So yeah, absolutely. Prof, have you got anything to comment about that? Yeah, no, I was fascinated by this paper. I agree entirely with Craig, a simple message, uh, but, you know, tough to know uh, whether the modeling for the corrosion based on the worst case scenario they measured on the x-ray is truly going to be reflected clinically and how frequent that's going to be. Like Craig, I haven't seen a true clinical correlate, but I've seen one or two people uh, talking about this and being concerned about it. And ultimately, the, the increased usage of dual mobility is something that we're seeing rise exponentially. Mm. Mm. And we're just going to have to be mindful of this problem. And it's amazing how many of these things come back to very basic messages, which is expose when expose what you're trying to do, make sure you see the socket, make sure you put the liner properly, whatever liner it is, because whether we're talking about dual mobility or ceramic or frankly, anything else, if you can't see what you're doing, you're more likely to get it wrong. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely, Prof. And as you say, it seems to be on the rise. There's obviously another paper uh, in the supplement, which we may come on to, but talking about the increase, it was an analysis of the American Joint Replacement Registry showing that the, the trends are definitely going up for use over there. Have you noticed that, Craig? Oh, yeah. I mean, the trends are there. Again, I, I would fall into the early adopter um, camp in general. Mm. And as we started specifically in a revision population to see a high rate of failure of constrained liners, mm. you know, we started to look for alternatives. Yeah. And, you know, we had looked at some data and saw a substantial failure rate of our constrained liners. And most of them were mechanical failures, the locking rings broke or whatever. Mm. So we started looking at uh, alternatives and and had some good early successes with dual mobility mm. uh, and, and honestly haven't seen uh, many negative effects of using them other than the cost of the implant. So. Sure, sure. So if we move on from the dual mobility, the other two prize papers were on the topic of infection and surprising obviously uh, often something that's talked about at, at these meetings. And the first was um, the Frank Stinchfield Award winner uh, as a large international multi-center respective study that use machine learning to study the results of the DARE procedure for periprosthetic joint infection. They had over a thousand revision hip and knee arthritis in that. And the other was the paper from Bostrom and colleagues that won the John Charney Award. Uh, and that reported on the use of a murine model of prosthetic joint infection uh, to study the DARE procedure. So Craig, would you give us a brief overview of those two papers and what you feel they've added to the literature? Well, I think the, you know, I think with the basic science uh, paper, you know, I think just like when we were talking before, I hope we're not replacing hips with metal and plastic 200 years from now. Mm-hmm. You know, we're definitely missing a bunch of stuff when it comes to treatment of periprosthetic joint infection. Mm. And, you know, it's challenging in a short period of time to go over the methods of this complicated and elegant paper, but you yeah. should read it because it talks about a lot of stuff that is different ways of approaching the problem of infection and biofilm and dealing with staphylococcal species. Mm. And I'm sure that this was a multi-year project that took a lot of time and a lot of care and probably a lot of money to, to put this all together. Sure. So I definitely think um, it's award worthy just in the complexity of what it was trying to address and mm-hmm. trying to give us some new tools in our toolbox to, to manage periprosthetic joint infection, which you know, not only is common, but is associated with significant uh, morbidity, mortality, and cost. So I think any type of uh, treatment modalities that we can come up with that are new and that will that will potentially work, uh, you know, are certainly award worthy. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And the the larger study that looked at sort of the machine learning, obviously, we're seeing more of this sort of technique and analysis used in 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 the, in the literature. What do you think the field main take home from that was? Again, I think a lot of this is in in some ways exposure to machine learning, yeah. and for people to understand, you know, obviously, there's you know, our brain can process only so much. Yeah. Um, but the question is, is can we use things like machine learning and artificial intelligence to do things that we just can't do yeah. um, and to get us to better answers? And like you said, it's a very large uh, population of patients. Yeah. Um, it does give you some very useful parameters in terms of which patients are going to be at higher risk for failure. Yeah. And again, elegant methods, a large sample size and uh, multi-center, yeah. uh, you know, it picks a lot of the boxes for something that can be really useful and important. No, I, I agree. Uh, Prof, would you, anything to add to that for those two, those p- papers on infection? No, again, you know, important to see some studies that aren't ready for, ready for clinical translation yet because we need to be in that space. And, you know, like Craig, spend a lot of my career worrying about periprosthetic infection and working on it. So I think it's, it's nice to see some new thinking and some novel modalities. And, you know, the, the, the machine learning piece, I think it's very interesting. It's not so much about that data set. It's much yeah. more about the fact that that's a concept we're going to have to use more and more. And that's, you know, to my mind, it's likely that because it's a multi-center study looking at a new process that we should all be using and thinking about whether we're looking at knee alignment, whether we're looking at function or whether we're looking at infection, you know, machine learning is going to have to, a, a role to play in helping us as is artificial intelligence. So I think that's the future. And uh, that's probably the key takeaway from that paper. So it's, I mean, you know, three excellent prize papers. Mm-hmm. And I think, we, you know, we, uh, we hope our readers will enjoy them. We hope that they will uh, propel people onto new studies and better work. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a, a, a good place for us to stop, Prof. And I think that's all we have time for. But thank you to you both, Craig and Prof, for joining us for our podcast today. And congratulations on an excellent supplement that I think will be a real interest to our readers. So thank you to you both. Thank you much. To our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and we encourage you to share any thoughts or comments through Twitter, Facebook uh, alike regarding the supplement and feel free to post a tweet about anything we've discussed here today. And thanks again for listening.